HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Kiva, a Greenhorns partner and nonprofit that has helped hundreds of farmers raise over $2 million in microloans, all without charging any interest or fees. Find out more at us.kiva.org slash greenhorns. This episode is brought to you by Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported nonprofit radio station devoted to all things food, and we need your support during our end-of-year fund drive. A contribution in any amount not only supports our 34 weekly programs, it also comes with exclusive member benefits like monthly best-of playlists, sweet new gifts, discounted event tickets, members-only parties, and more. So if you like good food and you love good food radio, throw a little dough our way. Give your gift by going to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. This is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers by young farmers. This is Severin. I'm your host once again for another episode again back. This is our second episode with Erica, who is the longtime leader of beginning farmer programming at Cornell Small Farms Program and a holistic management educator, a permaculturist, a small farmer, poultry maven, and one of the most dearest, wonderful people that I love so much. Hello, Erica. Oh, hi, Severin. So hi. nice to hear your voice again. I know. We have to talk loud because they have only janky radio equipment. Okay. <laughs> Can you hear me all right? I do. Just If you can't hear me, just invent it. Okay. Um, let's get started with an introduction to your operation and the region in which you work. Um, okay. So my operation is called Shelter Belt Farm. We just finished our seventh season, although in some ways, because of how we keep evolving our farm, it sort of felt like it was um, my first or second season. Um, I raise, I'm focused on pastured and 100% grass-fed animals interspersed with a perennial orchard system, although we do also have some high tunnels where we raise annual crops. And... Um, the region where I'm located is in, I'm in Brooktondale, New York, which is about 15 minutes southeast of Ithaca. And uh, Ithaca does have 
a bit of like a little bubble going on, being that it is um, a university town with Ithaca College and Cornell University, and so there's a really thriving local food scene, lots of small farms, um, just a really nice collaborative network of farmers as well. We've benefited really greatly from mentorship of some of the farmers around here. Can you talk about some of the upsides and the downsides of your bioregion from a young agrarian standpoint or from a new agrarian standpoint? Oh, let's see. Upsides and downsides of this bioregion. Um, well, the upside of this bioregion is that most years we have lots of water. We have abundant water. Um, and we have a nice long cold season where most things kind of go dormant and we farmers can take a little bit of a mental break. Um, this past year, however, we did not have abundant moisture. We suffered uh, from a stage three drought and it was really hard on every type of farm. For us, it meant that our pastures dried up and we had to get really creative with sheep and cattle grazing in the summer. And it also was really hard on all of the new things that we had planted into our orchard. We're focusing on diversifying our orchard and adding lots of um, unusual berry crops to the understory. And uh, we lost a bunch of those this summer because I couldn't water them enough. And we've added a flock of uh, laying ducks to our operation this year because they fill a niche on our farm. And what that means for me so far is that I'm not getting quite as much of a break in the winter as I would like. Typically by Thanksgiving, where well, we still have daily chores to do, of course. We have to feed the animals every day. But um, usually I'm not having to do quite as much like marketing and bookkeeping and um, you know, staying on top of customer management and things like that in the winter. And now that we have um, about 35 dozen eggs a week, I'm still having to really manage all of that. So we got through all the downsides and the upsides, and now can we talk about the phenomenology, meaning what's been going on on the ground in the course of your tenure there in that landscape? Ah, um, well, specifically on our farm or in the broader region? Well, we didn't talk that much about you yet, so maybe both. <laughs> Well, I can probably say more since I have more direct experience with uh, specifically our farm. We, um, we chose a real challenge for ourselves in, in picking this piece of land that we're on. We, uh, with my in-laws about, when was it that I last talked to you on this show, Sev? I forget if I was in our first or second year, maybe. Yeah, you were just transitioning from being mostly small farm lady and more subsistence to getting into being production turkey lady. Ah, yes. Um, so we bought a piece of land in 2009 that was, had, had not been managed in any way for over 30 years. Um, and it was about 25 acres. There was no infrastructure. And um, here in the Northeast, what unmanaged land looks like after 30 years, and previous to that it had corn grown on it, and it's a big west-facing slope, so you can imagine what uh, corn cropping on this piece of land did to it. And then when it sat for 30 years, it grew up in 
pine trees and black locust and rose bushes and goldenrod and honeysuckle. And there were parts of this property that when we bought it, we couldn't literally couldn't walk through them. Um, and so the land is almost unrecognizable from that. There is a patch actually still that is pretty wild and looks a lot like it did when we bought it. But we've been really focused on improving the soil, which has meant jump-starting the mineral cycling um, and water cycling of the soil. When we got here, the soil had gotten so acidic, there was actually moss covering about half of it, and the pH was below 5, and um, nothing was breaking down. So all of the, the litter, the stems that would fall on the soil surface, get crushed there by snow or, or by passing deer or whatever, would just pile up on the soil surface. So there was like a couple inches of litter over a lot of the soil. Um, and so we've done a lot of brush mowing and intensive grazing and building lots and lots of infrastructure and cutting down trees and planting new trees. Um, and so the place looks completely different. And um, I have a lot of interest, although not a lot of knowledge, actually, in understanding more about how the bird populations have changed as a result of what we've done and other wildlife. Um, and that's something that I've been wanting. As Once our farm operation feels a little bit more settled and a little more mature, I would like to understand a little bit more about how our practices are impacting the natural species. Of course, we are managing everything organically and really focusing on soil health, and we notice a lot of nesting birds in the paddocks that we graze, and we try to avoid nests and things like that. But we don't... Um, yeah, we don't have a really good understanding, though, of, of uh, how exactly we're impacting species composition, other than the plants that we see here, like completely different plant makeup now in our pastures than what we started with. Well, there's definitely DIY stuff. I know a little bit that um, in the citizen science world, there's some basic kind of inventory-taking tools for just noting down when you see which birds in the season, um, in the phylogeny. Phy, I'll go look it up on the computer um, during the next time that you're talking, and I'll put, then we can put it on the links, because there's a really cool one that I do know about, but my knowledge is also very limited. Um, and so you've been scratching away at this pasture, which is like, like a lot of other pastures, uh, overgrown pastures in in New England and other kind of underutilized farming regions. Um, can you talk about the processes that you've undertaken uh, in terms of the invisible structures of how you approach those decisions and especially uh, how holistic management has informed that, um, that decision-making process? Because there's so sure. much to do all at once, and how do you decide what to do first and where to spend yeah. money? <laughs> yeah. Um... Well, should I should I give a little bit of a description of what holistic management is? I don't want to assume that everyone oh, has heard of it or knows about it. Yes. Okay. So uh, holistic management originated with Alan Savory back in the 1980s. Um, he was born and raised in Zimbabwe, then called Rhodesia, and came to the U.S. Um, he was a... a I guess like a range, it was like a, a forest ranger or like a range biologist um, in Africa. And he started noticing things about, um, like his, his observations all started with what was happening on the land and how that was related to 
how people were managing the land. And so he was seeing, like, for example, seeing desertification and starting to realize that we, we tended to blame the animals for desertification, but that it actually had a lot more to do with how the humans were managing the animals um, than the animals' own inherent uh, traits that was, like, detrimental to the land. Um, so he started working with some ranchers in Africa, uh, but, and they started seeing lots of improvements when they changed how they managed their animals, but then their businesses would fall apart or their marriages would fall apart. And he gradually came to the realization that everything is connected, and so uh, really everything that happens, uh, a lot of the problems in the world are the result of human decision-making, and that what we have to do is, is come up with a way of making decisions that takes into account financial, ecological, and social relationships um, when we are thinking about something. But that sounds really overwhelming to try to think about everything when all you want to do is make one little decision. So gradually he came up with a, a really fairly simple process for doing this, and it's been evolving over the 30 or so years since he first started, uh, first brought this to the U.S. And there is an institute in New Mexico called Holistic Management International, and also Alan Savory now has the Savory Institute, and he's been working globally, doing some really groundbreaking work and winning big awards um, for the work that he's doing in reversing desertification and creating rural livelihood and producing really helpful meat. So um, I was trained in 2002. I did a two-year training program in holistic management, and we learned about developing a holistic goal which is totally different from any goal that you've ever written and has to do with um, getting all the decision makers together. So my husband and I sat down and we really tried to think about what is it that motivates us, what brings us peace and contentment, what makes us feel happy, what are the things that we need to have in our lives in order to feel like um, we're what we're meant to be doing in this world. Um, and we wrote that down and then... Um, we put it away and we never used it, and and we ended up realizing like some months later, like oh, I guess I think actually the first time we wrote it, we copied it from someone else, and uh, realized the importance of having it in our very own words because we didn't actually use it when it was written, uh, just a copy of somebody else's words. So over the years now, over the past um, what's it been? I guess 14 years since I started that training. We've rewritten our family holistic goal, and we've incorporated elements of the farm into it. Um, and now we, we use it fairly regularly, for, especially for major decisions on the farm. Um, and then we also, every solstice, summer and winter solstice, we sit down and revisit it and just say, how do we feel like we're doing? Are we, do we feel like we're moving closer? And the, the thing about a holistic goal is that it's about quality of life. It's not about you know, by this date we will have achieved this thing. It's more like a, a roadmap of how you want your, um, your life to be. So you never really get there. It's not a destination, but it guides every day and everything that we do. Um, so we'll look at it and say, how do we think we're doing and what, what do we need to put some focus on because we're kind of missing the mark on these things, like having quality time, vacation time off the farm or whatever. Um, so when we first bought this piece of land, oh, we were so anxious to get started doing stuff, uh, changing it, making it look more like the farm that we had in mind. But we forced ourselves from our permaculture training. We knew that it would be wise if we spent some time 
just watching the land, walking the land, observing, seeing sun and wind and water patterns, animal patterns, things like that. Um, and then when it came time to actually start doing something on the land, we weren't living here yet. Uh, for the first couple of years, we were living three miles down the road, which doesn't sound very far, but sure feels far when you have to come take care of animals or whatever. Um, so I had it in mind from the beginning that we were only going to use like biological means to clear this land. And when we did some brainstorming around that, it was like, well, probably goats. That's what everyone always says, is that goats are the best at brush clearing. And uh, maybe pigs could be good. Um, so I, <laughs> at the time, I was so anxious, I actually just started researching, like, where can I get some goats? And where do I get some fence? And was just going to go right ahead with it. But luckily, with our holistic management training, um, I had a pause and started thinking about the reality of what it was going to look like to have goats here when uh, a wise uh, goat shepherd once told me that if you have, if, if water can get through a fence, then goats can get through that fence. Um, and I started thinking about the fact that we didn't live on the land. We hadn't met all of our new neighbors yet, and we are, are surrounded on three sides by a fairly busy road, um, and we also didn't have, when we bought this land, there was no water or electric infrastructure here. So we were going to be powering the fence with a battery and carrying water to the goats and everything. Um, just started picturing what our first interactions with our neighbors might look like in the form of angry phone calls in the middle of the night. You know, your goats are eating all my flowers or something like that. Um, so we, we went through this process, the, the holistic management decision-making process starts with writing your holistic goal, but if you just write it and put it away and never use it, like we did the first time we wrote one, then it doesn't really actually help you with your decision-making at all. So following writing the holistic goal, there's actually a process of asking yourself these, um, they're called testing questions or sometimes called filtering questions. And if you go through each of those questions, they make sure that you have considered the social, the ecological, and the financial implications of the decision. So in this case, there's one question about a social weak link, which basically asks, um, you know, if you're comparing two different uh, options, in our case we were looking at like hiring someone to brush mow versus having the goats, is one of those decisions going to upset someone whose support you need. And that's where we had our first red flag with the goats idea. And so um, we did a bunch more research and we finished asking ourselves the testing questions. And by the end, I actually had convinced myself that even though I really wanted to do things ecologically, that it would be a better short-term decision to hire someone to come and brush mow just a few acres where we could then get started using maybe poultry. Um, was the next decision that we made because it was small and relatively cheap to get started and um, relatively easy to manage. They don't drink a lot of water, so we could just carry buckets of water in our car every day. Um, and they added a ton of fertility to the land. So we were raising animals here that required grain even when they're on pasture. And so we were bringing in all this organic grain but viewing it as a soil fertility input as it passed through the animals and was deposited on the soil and we're moving them every day or sometimes even twice a day and seeing these incredible vibrant green strips emerge, never adding any seed, 
but watching the soil surface go from covered with undecomposed litter of stems and everything that just wasn't breaking down and moss to suddenly seeing grass and clover and other legumes. We saw bird's foot trefoil and vetch and all kinds of things appearing that was just here in the soil seed bank and was waiting for the right conditions to emerge. So those kinds of testing questions can be used in lots of contexts, and there's a methodology within Savory's method to employ testing questions as a way to make, guide decision-making, not just in terms of what animals for clearing, but all kinds of decisions. So I know you to be a, a, method, a methodical person kind of temperamentally, but especially for people who are not so methodical, um, the discipline of doing team decision-making using Savory's framework um, seems like it could have a lot of benefits, and I know that it does. Yes, it is a challenge, though, I think, for people who are not temperamentally suited to, you know, sitting down and, and thinking through, like, writing out a holistic goal and then referring, that, referring to that repeatedly and um, asking the testing questions whenever they're facing a decision. Um, I'm glad you pointed out, too, that the testing questions are not for any specific purpose. I mean, I think a lot of people hear about holistic management um, in a particular context. So it does have its roots, its origin, in the management of livestock. But over the years, because it's just about decision-making and every single human alive on this planet, no matter what they're doing, no matter where they live, makes decisions every day, it is actually totally relevant even for, um, you know, an illiterate tribes person who lives in Africa and an urban uh, single person who l works an office job in New York. I mean, it's, it's relevant to anyone. That's the beauty of it. This episode is brought to you by Kiva, a nonprofit that helps farmers grow their businesses by providing access to 0% interest capital up to $10,000. Crowdfunded by Kiva's community of 1.5 million supportive lenders around the world. Here to talk about Kiva is Yanni Bunch from the Farmer Veteran Coalition. Farmer Veteran Coalition is a nonprofit that works with military veterans going into farming. Farmer Veteran Coalition is a trustee on Kiva, meaning we endorse our farmers for their loans. Farmer Veteran Coalition works with Kiva because Kiva provides a great opportunity for our farmers to have access to 0% interest capital to grow their businesses. In the past, we have endorsed farmers such as Joel, who purchased an overhead feed bin so he could pay bulk prices for his cattle feed as opposed to store prices, and Amanda, who purchased a new greenhouse. If you are interested in applying for a Kiva loan, the process is quick and easy. The typical application takes less than an hour to complete and doesn't require uploading any financial statements. Farmers have a 98% success rate on Kiva, and on average, each farmer's loan is funded by over 140 lenders from Kiva's community. To find out more, visit us.kiva.org greenhorns. That's us.kiva.org slash greenhorns. So 
Can we talk a little more about um, the resources that are employed by the Young Farmer Posse that's in your part of the woods? And give a little call out to Kiva, who's our new radio sponsor and has been instrumental in your farm business. Can you reflect yes. on that from a, putting on your small farms and uh, small farms Cornell Small Farm Center hat? Yeah. Um, well, specifically with Kiva, I. Um, I'm a total Kiva lover, and do would all of your listeners? I mean, do, should we do we need to describe what Kiva is, or would everyone listening understand what Kiva is? Um, yeah, go for it. Okay. Um, so Kiva.org is a global micro lender of entrepreneurs, and a bunch of years ago, a few years ago, they started Kiva Zip as a domestic micro lender here in the U.S. Um, and then just last year completed a merger with Kiva.org. So basically any small business person, it's not specific to farming, uh, can apply to get a crowdsourced 0% interest loan through Kiva. And uh, they can have an organization that has been sort of vetted as trustworthy by Kiva endorse them for their loan and basically back them. The beauty of it is that it's all based on social capital. So if you are an entrepreneur who maybe doesn't have the best um, credit score or Or uh, doesn't have a ton of business experience but has this really great idea and has been trying to do something good, you can apply for a loan and you don't have to have a business plan and all all of the financial documents and everything that you would need to apply at a more traditional lender. You just need to get a certain number, I think it's something like 15 people in your network, friends, family, neighbors, to loan you money. And once your friends and neighbors have invested in you, your loan can go public on the Kiva web platform. So I've now, I think I've been in every role that that the public can be in with Kiva. I have been first a borrower for my farm, just to check it out, because it, uh, we tried to publicize this years ago after, I think you were the first person who told me about Kiva Zip, Severin, and we tried to publicize it to our small farm audience, and the feedback we got was, what, 0% interest and, like, no other strings attached? No, that sounds, that sounds like some kind of scam. Like, that sounds like a hoax. It's too good to be true. So I thought, well, I'll try applying for my business and see how it goes. And so I got a Kiva Zip loan that funded the purchase of my first livestock guardian dog, my first six sheep, and uh, a small hoop house, a 20 by 48 foot hoop house on our farm. Um, and since then, we now have grown to have 30 ewes, and we're still growing. And we have added another much larger hoop house, and we have two livestock guardian dogs. So that was a really good um, kind of launching point for our business. And it went so well for me that I also became a lender, wanted to support other people who were getting Kiva Zip loans. And the nice thing about being a lender is it's sort of like making a charitable donation, except that your money keeps coming back to you and you can keep recycling it and lending it to other businesses. Um, And then the Small Farms Program became a trustee. We've now endorsed, I think, what are we up to, nine, maybe nine farmers, um, and the max loan, most of our farmers have gotten the max loan amount, which is $10,000 at 0% interest with a three-year repayment period. 
Um, and everyone we've worked with has had a really good experience with it, too. Yeah, and it turns out it's not a hoax. Um, right, <laughs> not at all. subsidized by philanthropy, but there's millions of dollars being shuffled around and circled around in a more of a flow state than in a, than in a capital state. Um, because all of the loans that get paid back go back to be loaned out again. And yeah. most people who make, um, who invest or who, who put money into the system leave their money in the system. Like, you know, theoretically they would get paid back, but they're often very happy and they just leave the money circulating to lend out to the next um, micro-entrepreneur. So. We're very, very happy, in, uh, Greenhorns, to be one of the top lenders to U.S. farmers, and but we'd love to share that burden with other organizations now that it's been field-tested. Um, so if you're listening and you're in touch with a regional sustainable ag group um, and you have any kind of skepticism or you think this might be something that's really relevant in your region, please do get in touch with Johnny at kiva.org or just call um, office at thegreenhorns.net, um, or email rather, and you can talk to Inez, who manages it on our side, or to Johnny, who's the national program guy, um, because our social network with Greenhorns only goes so far, and distributing the trusteeship into all the different farmers markets and granges and other associations of growers um, would make the benefit travel further and faster. So that would be our vision for Kiva, and we're running out of our time, so I want to make sure that I give Erica a chance to mention her favorite resources that we'll also link to from the blurb on the clickety-clack of the <laughs> web podcast, um, and final words. And then I have a couple final words, too. Okay. Um, well, we list on, on our farm website, shelterbeltfarm.com, um, we have a list of some of our favorite uh, resources and articles, and I write for I write a monthly column for my local town newsletter. Just my one of my passions is trying to connect non-farmers back to the farming world, because um, I believe it was uh, was it Wendell Berry or Thomas Jefferson who said eating is an agricultural act, Severin. Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry, the great Wendell Berry. So all of us have some connection to farming, whether we know it or not, or whether we acknowledge it or not, and I love connecting non-farming people back to food. So I write about what's happening on our farm, and I've put some of those articles into my blog, and you can check that out. Um, but from the Cornell Small Farms Program, any of you out there who are currently farming or interested in farming, uh, we have Cornell Small Farms has a YouTube channel that has some really excellent videos. We worked with a great videographer a few years ago, and he uh, documented on various farms like how they do what they do. So there's um, someone raising organic livestock from Kingbird Farm. There's like a four-video series on raising pigs from farrowing all the way to finish. There's some on apple orchards and vegetables and berries. Um, and even some on sheep and a sheep dairy, Northland Sheep Dairy, up in Marathon, New York. So those are really great to check out. And then uh, also if you spend any time on the Northeast Beginning Farmer website, there's a lot of resources there. We offer online courses. We have publications like the Guide to Farming in New York. 
um, and a bunch of other ones. We have a map of slaughterhouses that we're working on updating currently. So there's, uh, there's a wealth of resources there. And the other sister website to the Northeast Beginning Farmer Project is the Cornell Small Farms Program, which is smallfarms.cornell.edu. And there's a whole bunch of like production technical resources, uh, archives of webinars we've done, project updates from so you can see all the different things that the Small Farms Program works on. Um, so I think that's it, Sev. Yeah, well, just that Anu and Erica and Violet and the whole small farm teams are part of the small farm networks that are part of um, Langant colleges around the country. And if you don't know your small farm team in your state, go find them because they're often having one hat in production ag and one hat in scurrying around on the computer getting grants to make awesome videos about raising your own chicks or pigs on posture and breeding and really relevant and amazing um, programs. I want to make the last tiny announcement, which is that we have the new Farmer's Almanac coming out now, and it's a great Christmas gift, and you should get in touch with us um, and order a box for your CSA or your farm store or convince the cool hipsters you sell to in a nearby city to stock it in their cafe or restaurant or feed store or wherever because we would like to distribute our almanac to audiences near and far, and we hope that you are inspired to contribute to the next one, which will come out in 2019, because this is the 2017 one. So we're doing it every other year because the future will have odd weather. Thank you, Erica. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. And... Um, I'm sending a big hug. Thanks, Severin. Bye-bye, everybody. I'm in love with Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.